Let's read it. Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to read from verses 1 to 13. And getting into a boat, he, that is Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Jesus, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Well, let's pray as we come to God's word together. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Our Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning from your word what it means to have our sins forgiven, what it means to have peace in our souls. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, on Sunday mornings, we are looking together at Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10. And these chapters are preparation material in order to help us as Christians share our faith with others. With Sam and with Chris, They spoke of people, in Sam's case, his dad and mum, and no doubt many others, and in Chris's case, EJ, and then Andy, going and telling. That's what it means. Ordinary people telling ordinary people about Jesus. But the confidence to do that does not come through our own abilities. The confidence to do that comes through understanding the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus. We will not go and tell the people of Morningside the good news of Jesus unless we grasp and understand that Jesus Christ, by his authority, who is building his church in this community as in any other, is at work in people's lives, opening doors, creating a conviction about sin, creating a longing that Chris described to see beyond what he could not see and to receive what others had. Jesus is at work all the time. 
We need the confidence, though, in him to go and to tell. You saw that picture of that lovely house that we get to live in. It is great, and God has been good. God willing that house in that community. We discovered this week that two doors up, there's another Christian minister in that house. And there's another Christian family at the other end of the estate. What is going to give us the confidence to go and tell these neighbors about Jesus? Not that I'm a minister. That's an easy thing to say. They just go, no, you're not. (laughs) Yes, I am. Jesus, though. Confidence in Jesus. That he is at work somewhere in that community. All we will do if we invite or ask or tell the gospel, if he is not at work in their life, is they will give us a polite no. Now, for the sake of someone's eternal salvation, are you and I prepared for a polite no? Of course we are. Now, let's turn to this passage, which is very powerful about Jesus' authority. Four points you'll see on the service sheet. In service one, I got to the end of point one. But I... uh, now, I use a number of phrases when I'm preaching. Waggling on the T is one. Uh, I brought uh, a whole new dimension to waggling on the T in service one. And I haven't done that in service two. So here we are on point one. Let's see how far we go. The authority of Jesus to forgive sins. Now, just glance back, if you've got a Bible, uh, at chapter eight. We have already looked at powerful demonstrations of Jesus' authority. It began with him healing a leper, that very moving episode when Jesus reached out and took the hand which would have had sores on it of a leper, the unclean, healed him. And then the centurion's servant, who Matthew records, chapter 6, verse 8, was lying at home suffering terribly. Chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, more demonstrations of Jesus' authority over sickness and suffering, and also the devil, evil, as he cast out demons. Then chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, his authority over nature as he quells a great storm with a word. And the men who saw it, verse 27, marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? Finally, in chapter 9, verse 28 to the end, Jesus powerfully, emphatically, uh, 8 rather, verse 28 to the end, Jesus powerfully, emphatically demonstrates his authority over the devil and evil as he casts the demons into the pigs who are destroyed. Let me just say this to you, if you're here not a Christian and listening in to what is happening, and just remind the two of you as Christians and all of us, if we are Christians here, that these miracles that are recorded in the Gospels, the healing of a leper of his sores, the healing of a paralyzed man in terrible agony, the quelling of a force-eight gale, with a word, and the removal of a swell with a word, the casting out of demons, the casting out of demons that had such a ferocity in the lives of these two men that 200 pigs rushed down a hill and were drowned in the sea. If these are faith stories, 
if they are stories with a spiritual meaning and did not literally happen, then it takes the rug out from under the Christian faith and leaves you with nothing. For the greatest miracle of all is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if that didn't happen, then you pull the rug out from under any confidence that at the end of this life when death comes, as it will, there is any hope. These stories are real accounts. If they're not, then that's not Christianity. And that, now, if you're here and you're thinking, well, how can they be true? Because no man can do these things. You're right. Only God can. Let me encourage you, like Chris and Sam have done, is look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Now, authority over sickness, suffering, nature, the devil, and evil, um, in performing these miracles, Jesus not only demonstrates his authority as God's king or as God, he reveals to us what his kingdom is like. It is a kingdom that is free of sickness and suffering, free of the destructive power on force of nature, free of the devil and of evil, and of course, free of where all these things lead to us, lead to in the end death, that long dark shadow that falls over every life. Jesus' kingdom is free of death. Sam and Chris, that is the kingdom you entered into when you became a Christian. That is the kingdom we proclaim. That is the kingdom that we go and tell people about. And that is good news. Now, there's an understatement from the preacher. Now, so here's what we get to tell people in Meadowspot or wherever you live. That Jesus Christ, his kingdom, is one where there is no sickness where there are no tears, where there is no anxiety, where there is no fear, where there are no undertakers, graveyards, or crematoria. None of this shadow that casts its darkness over every human life. Now, that's good news. But that dimension of Jesus' kingdom is not for now. That dimension of Jesus' kingdom is not yet. And it's not not yet because Christians need to say it's not yet because it's not here. It's not yet because Jesus said again and again, it is not yet. That's for then when I return. So he said through John's revelation at the end of the Bible, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things has passed away. The old order has gone. Now you might be, if you're not a Christian, listening to this and saying, that would be great, but it's just pie in the sky. Yes, it is, unless 
And were it not for the fact that Jesus Christ, the one who says these things, did these things and rose from death to life and said, whoever believes in me will rise from death to life and live with me in a place where there are no tears and sickness and suffering and death. See, at the end of the day, everybody, like Chris and Sam have done, needs to make a decision about what you will do with this man, Jesus Christ. Is he mad? Is he bad? Or is he the son of God? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the living manifestation of God in human flesh? That is the answer to all the deepest needs and cravings of humanity. Not least, and especially so, being made right with God and having life everlasting. Now, that is the kingdom to come. What of the kingdom now? Well, Jesus came to show us what his kingdom will be like at the end of the age. But primarily, he came now to save us for that kingdom at the end of the age. In this age, the urgent priority is that men and women be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of their sins. See, if Sam and Chris had stood up here with their testimony and said, look, I've become a Christian, I've entered into God's kingdom, and all manner of wonderful things are going to come and happen to me. Well, we would have stopped there. We wouldn't have baptized them. Because that's not true. And I whispered to Kyrie just after you guys were baptized and we were coming up, you know, there's tough, tough days ahead for you too. Living Christians. It's tough. What they said in their testimony, though, was that my sins are forgiven. Not because we told them to say it, because it is the most important thing. Because that's what reconciles us to God. You cannot inherit all the glory of the new creation if you are not a Christian. And you become a Christian. Not by attending a Christian community. Not by growing up in the right family, although that's a wonderful blessing that Sam had and I had and many of you had. You become a Christian when you come to Jesus Christ and realize that you need forgiven and find that forgiveness in him. Then you become a Christian. Then you receive all the benefits and the blessings of salvation. Now, that's the point that Matthew is making in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 9. The urgent need in this life is for the forgiveness of sins. There is no greater need than that. There is no more important thing Jesus can do for us than forgive our sins. Because sin, indwelling sin in every one of us, that causes us to rebel against God and reject him, is the fundamental problem that needs dealt with in the human heart. Somebody was chatting to me after the first service, and he said to me, I don't agree with that because I've lived a good life. Surely God will look with favor in me. And, that's, and I, I said to him, I said, well, what do you think I... I was, Pointing back to you, what do you think I have thought in the last week or said? 
And I said to him, what did you think about last night? This morning? He was silent. I said, you might be better than me. But you're not as good as God. Behold, verse 2, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, let me try and put that with a modern idiom. Somebody brought into this church, I guess, this morning from Marie Curie or St. Columbus Hospice, riddled with cancer. I mean, that's what's here. Sickness and bleakness and pain. And Jesus looks at this man lying in front of him, and there is no lack of compassion in the Lord Jesus. After all, just a day or two before, he took the sore, covered hands of a leper. And Jesus says, when he saw their faith, to the paralytic, take heart, my son. Take heart, my son. And if you were that man's son, who was lying paralyzed, or his wife, your heart would leap for joy because Jesus was going to give him back his legs. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus dealt with that man's greater need. And this is meant to be provocative. You need to stare the worst of human suffering in the face. And that's not hypothetical. Most of you have seen that in the life of someone you have loved. You need to look at that and conclude that there is a greater need in this life than their physical healing, which is dealing with the fundamental problem that separates them from a holy God and a place with God and Jesus in that new creation. And all he asks of us is to come to terms with the urgency of our need of forgiveness. And lay hold of him in faith. Now, Chris described that and Sam very powerfully in their testimony. At the point where Chris knew he needed to become a Christian, he was wanting to look for something to do. It's just faith. It's just yes. I believe. These were the questions we asked them. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? What did they respond with? Well, look at my life. Here's an essay on my understanding of the theology of atonement. Now, they do understand that, but they couldn't write an essay. What did they say? I do. I do. I do. I do. That's all. Now, uh, 
Matthew's emphasis is on the authority of Jesus, verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said, this man is blaspheming. And of course, it's a fair thing they're saying. And the point is that only God can forgive sins. Only God has the ability and the prerogative to do it. And so it is blasphemy for Jesus to claim that he can forgive sins. And that's a fair accusation. But Jesus, knowing Verse 4, their thoughts said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. Now, there are whole sways of the Christian church that will say that the very heart of the gospel is not about the forgiveness of sins. Whole sways of the Christian church that will not encourage people to come to terms with their sinful hearts and repent and believe. Jesus says, that is evil. Now think of it like this. Were we to have admitted Sam and Chris into membership of this church and said we rejoice that they have become Christians and tell them of all these wonderful privileges that are ahead, we had never spoken to them about their need of forgiveness or Sam's dad, you'd never spoken to him about him being sinful and in need of Jesus' cleansing. That's evil. It's dangerous. It's not the gospel. He doesn't stand up at death or life. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Verse 6 is the turning point. But that you may know that the Son of Man, the Son of Man is just a divine title for God's Messiah King from the book of Daniel. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said, Rise up, take your bed and go home. Now, Jesus said, what's easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up from your bed and walk? Of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do you know? but that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. And the man got up, and he had sinews and muscles and tendons, blood flowing in his legs again, and he got up. Imagine watching that. He got up, walked out in full view, and they were afraid to write and amazed. Now, there's a great little picture of what real faith in Jesus is. When you guys come to terms with Jesus, you are afraid And it's wonderful. It's both together. Sometimes Jesus is the closest friend you will ever have. At other times, he's an almighty king before whom you bow. And you cannot look him in the face. Now, Sam and Chris, the most important thing that has happened in your life is that your sins have been forgiven through faith in Jesus. Therefore, you have entered into the kingdom of Christ, and therefore you will come through death and live in that new creation. And what is true for Sam and Chris is true for every Christian. The most important day or period of time, it can happen over a period of time, is when you come to terms with the fact that you are a sinner and in need of forgiveness. So are your sins forgiven? Are your sins forgiven? Have you heard Jesus saying to you, take heart, my child, your sins are forgiven? Have you heard him? Have you heard him 
in the sense of that being an, a wonderful answer to an urgent question that you were desperate to know the answer to? Have you felt the answer as God's rescue? Now, does this sound like Jesus wielding his authority, telling us we need our sins forgiven? He is the right as God's king to do so. But remember that this great king will disarm any questions about his authority to say our sins need forgiven. Because this great king became a servant king and laid down his life on a cross bearing our sin and bearing God's judgment for our sin. Now imagine the man who Jesus healed that day. Matthew simply records verse 7, and he rose and went home. Now imagine if you were in the house as his son or his wife or his mum, if he's young, who knows? And he walked in. Imagine that. They would have been shocked and astonished. And on into the evening, they would have had a great celebration, surely, because their dad could walk again. And he might have said to them, look, son, what really mattered today was that my sins were forgiven. But, I mean, live in the real world, his son would say, dad can walk again. Isn't that wonderful? Of course he would. But the man who Jesus healed that day would have grown old and frail, and one day he would lie down on his bed again, his deathbed, and die. And as he lay there dying at the end of his life on earth, I'd love to think he was a real believer. Maybe he had seen Jesus die on the cross. He connected the words of forgiveness with the means of forgiveness. I wondered if he took his wife's hand as he was dying and whispered to her, It's all right, dear. What Jesus did for me that day, forgiving my sins, was the most important thing he ever did for me because it's made me safe and secure with God. Now, is that sentimental? Is that a testimony out of some book of old deathbed conversions? Well, that is exactly what happened this week. Exactly, word for word. As I sat with a very dear friend as he died. The last audible, coherent words he really spoke. He took his wife's hand and his daughter's hand and prayed that they would be comforted in the knowledge that his sins were forgiven and theirs were, and that nothing, not even what was going to happen to him, would separate them from God's love. Are you ready to die like that? A day or two later, when he was unconscious, the night he died, I had an hour sitting alone with him by his bed in the dark, The greatest privilege afforded to a minister is to be with people as they leave this life for eternity. For the gospel becomes more and more manifest and real and evident in their faces, in their lives, in the very atmosphere of the rooms they are in, if they are believers. And we listen together to 50 golden hymns. You can imagine what they were like. Some of them were, I have to say, inappropriate, like 25 trumpets and trombones, and this man was just dying. (laughs) 
but some of them were wonderfully appropriate, like this one. This is the one I remember from that night. And, and it's not like a sentimental scene. This man was dying. He was up to his uh, eyeballs in morphine and atropine. He was coughing. He was choking. He was rasping. And on the tape came these words, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to Christ's cross. And there it remains. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Now, that's when the forgiveness of our sins really, really matters. We've spoken a lot about the now and the not yet bits of the kingdom. The wonderful thing is that the now bit of the kingdom of Jesus is the forgiveness bit. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth now to forgive sins. You too are fully forgiven because your forgiveness is based entirely on what Jesus has done. And he has done it and he's finished it. He's died and he's risen. So we can sing now, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Nailed not in part, but the whole to the cross. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Can you sing that? I said somewhat uh, regrettably in the first service, and I'll say it again because it's true. I will have the privilege, I guess, of sitting at the bedside of a number of you as you die. Probably. I mean, that's what, as long as I'm the minister for a while. Maybe you will have the privilege of sitting at my bedside if I die before you. I hope if I fall sick and die of cancer or whatever, you'd come and visit me and remind me that my sins are forgiven. I said this with a couple of people in my eye line in service one. I'm not going to look at any of you. And I said to him, please don't wait till your deathbed to let me plead with you when you're drugged up to the eyeballs and can hardly hear to come to Jesus. That's playing with the fire of eternal hell. Now, the gracious, powerful calling of the Lord. Just in a word, these last little bits. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose. This is Matthew, the writer of the gospel, his own little story of his conversion. Before his conversion, Matthew was a tax collector. In the ancient world, tax collectors were rogues, extortionists, fleecing people, um, not anymore, but they were then. And in calling Matthew to follow him, Jesus illustrates the grace of the gospel. The gospel is for such as him. 
The gospel's for anyone. It is for the least deserving, humanly speaking. It is for the least likely, humanly speaking. That should give us confidence and mission that Jesus really can and will call that person impossible. What did Chris say in Sam in their testimony? What I am doing now, where you two have told me I would be doing that now, I would have just thought that's crazy. It is crazy. And you both got the gift of the gab, so I'll be on to you. The gospel is for everyone. Now, some of the Bible commentators suggest that Matthew got up that morning and he turned to his wife over breakfast and he said, Mrs. Matthew, um, I just feel in my life that uh, there's something that makes me feel bad and guilty about fleecing people every day as a tax collector. And really, I think it's time, dear, I turned over a new leaf. Help people a bit more. And Mrs. Matthew said to him, well, that's great, dear. I've seen that change in your life. That's, that's highly unlikely. Matthew went to his tax collector's booth that day, and he'd be sitting in that little booth thinking, who can I fleece from this crowd for some money? And Jesus comes along, and he says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. Why? Why? Why did these two, I'm going to call you boys, and he calls you men, but you're boys to me. Why did these two boys follow him? Because they said yes. But behind their saying yes, there was the powerful call of the Lord Jesus. The powerful call of the Lord Jesus. Here's a, an old hymn. Some of you will recognize it. In simple trust, like theirs who heard beside the Syrian sea, the gracious calling of the Lord. Let us, like them, without a word, rise up and follow thee. The powerful calling of the Lord. Now, if you feel that call on your life from Jesus that they described, it cannot ever be manufactured by somebody's rhetoric or somebody's persuasion. It is supernatural. But what else did Matthew do? He got up and he followed. Someone who comes under the authority and conviction of their need of forgiveness in Jesus has to, in the end, believe or get up and follow him. The worst, worst, worst and most devastating experiences I have had as a Christian minister is watch people come to that point and turn away. Because I know, and you never fully know, in these instances when we get to the crisis day, the deathbed stuff, the hand goes up. And people say no. Matthew got up and followed him. You guys made a promise. Jesus is not only my Savior, but the Lord of my life. So when he says go, you need to go. When he says come, you need to come. 
Thirdly, the fellowship of forgiven sinners. Verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. And now point here, this is like a a little teensy prototype for the church. Um, Here's a a, a story of an illustration of this. I have a friend, Christopher Ash, in London, and he was in a little church. um, People were becoming Christians. And somebody came along to a a baptism service, I guess a bit like this. And uh, at the end of the service, this person who wasn't a Christian said, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And Christopher said, absolutely, but there's always room for one more. (laughs) The most powerful apologetic for the gospel is a Christian community full of normal people. You are all normal. Normal people. Hypocrites, sinners. Like me. Forgiven. You guys are part of fellowship. So you get to call me brother, and I get to call you brother. It's kind of a posh way of saying fellow Christians, but it's a wonderful thing. Fellowship is better than friendship. It's rich. And then finally, Jesus' mission is to sinners. Jesus is criticized by the religious authorities for spending time with tax collectors and sinners, but he will not be diverted from his mission. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, verse 10, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with him. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who did Jesus come for? Not the righteous, not the religious not the middle class, morally upright. He came for ministers who knew they were sinners. He came for the middle class, morally upright, who came to terms that they were sinners to the very core of their beings. He came for the poor and the marginal. He did. And he came for you too. And to those of us who have become Christians, we are now called to go and tell, pointing men and women to the Lord Jesus. It doesn't take great eloquence or great ability. It takes a parent who sees that the greatest priority for their son is their faith. It takes a parent to try to once a week, have family devotions. That's pretty good going. It takes somebody to chance their arm and say to their friend, my brother is preaching and he's much better than the other minister. I did take issue with that bit of your testimony. My sermon was boring, but his was great. I mean, it a little bit of creativity there. My brother is preaching, and he's got a particular style. Please, will you come and hear him? You can't really say no. Then it takes somebody inviting somebody for a meal. And as they leave at the end of the meal, would you read the Bible with me? And here we are today. Is it worth it? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you with all our hearts for the forgiveness of sins that your Son has wrought for us through his death. Help us all to believe and to go and tell this glorious gospel message with a confidence that you are at work in people's hearts and in people's lives. We pray this all for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.